Welcome to the Perfume Making Podcast with me, Karen Gilbert. And in today's episode, I'm in conversation with fragrance industry expert Miriam Vereldis from Palette Naturals. Miriam and I have had a really similar career experience over the last few decades, both working in fragrance development for IFF and ending up with a passion for naturals and teaching others how to smell and how to blend. We had loads of fun in this conversation and we could have gone on for hours, so it's a little bit of a long one today. And we will be talking all about how Miriam got into the fragrance industry and ended up working for one of the most influential women in fragrance, her passion for natural materials and her inspiration behind the brand Palette Naturals as a way of helping brand owners, especially in the skincare business, create natural fragrances easily. Okay, so welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me on the Perfume Making Podcast. I know that we have probably got a million things that we can talk about and a variety of different directions. But what I would really love just to start us off is just do a little bit of an intro to you, um, what you are doing right now. I want to I talk to you about so many things about how you got into the fragrant in, fragrance industry and also our joint experiences back in the day working for IFF in, in our different roles. But just, for, just to start us off, do a little bit of an intro for anyone listening who doesn't know you um, and where they can find you, what, what you're doing right now and, um, and where people can find you. Oh, well, Karen, thank you so much. It's such a, uh, it was wonderful to start hearing your podcast and just connecting uh, and hearing your voice again. And I just got so excited to reconnect with you. So thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm here. Um, I'm speaking to you from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, in our blistering heat right now in the summer. Um, I relocated here a little over two years ago. So, but your listeners may know already, I mean, I've been in the fragrance industry and um, most currently, and when I say current, in the last seven years, really my focus has been on Palette Naturals and having developed and launched Palette Naturals to the industry after I left Roberté. So back in 2016, I de started developing it and we launched in 2017. So I'm not sure where we want to enter the story or the picture, but just as a little sort of overview, um, the collection has been on the market. It's been a global, you know, we've been shipping globally for formulators behind the scenes uh, for the Accords and... I've taken that collection originally at 14 and we're now at 20 and I've got two more in the hopper, um, which <laughs> I can maybe talk about at the end. Yeah, definitely. We've, yeah. Um, but I've got some other things that I've been curious and exploring while I've been living here in Tucson. And we can talk about that a little definitely. bit more at the end on the woo and side of life. Definitely. And also just for anyone listening, anything that we mention, um, today where there's like a reference or a link I will put a link in the show notes um, Miriam will put a link to Palette Naturals like we'll talk about it afterwards and I'll get you to give me the links for where people can find you on social media that kind of thing if they want to find out more we'll stick that all in the show notes and yeah I definitely want to talk to you more about Palette Naturals and what you're and the woo stuff as well we'll, we'll yes, go down absolutely. that rabbit hole a little bit absolutely. later 
But what? so I guess my first question for you really, and this is something that I'd love to know for myself as well, because I know that we kind of worked at IFF together. Then you carried, you worked with Robert A and lots of other um, company, you know, different bits and pieces as well. But Mm -hmm. how did you first get started in the fragrance industry? Like, was it something that you always knew you wanted to do? Did you fall in? Like I completely fell into fragrance by accident, not, but I got kind of got in the back door through doing a work placement at IFF when I was at the London College of Fashion. So I didn't have the background and I didn't ever kind of set out thinking, oh, I want to work in, fra- in fragrance. I didn't even know it was a thing. But I would love to know your perspective on that. How did it work? How did it work? How did you end up here doing what you're doing? Um, you know, I, I have to trace it back. So take a deep breath, because when you look back, especially if, as when you get farther in life and you look back and you see the thread it's pretty remarkable. So, um, you know, always loving scent. I mean, we can talk about that, you know, the love of scent from being a child, but that has nothing to do with the perfume industry. Let's just cut to my teenage years for a second. Um, And as embarrassing as this sounds, I mean, it was the seventies, so I'm not embarrassed about my age whatsoever. My number one job that I wanted to get, no matter what, was to work in what was called then the beauty cosmetics department of the department store. And I can see you laughing. Um, That was just what I thought was going to be the coolest thing in the world, because I would be surrounded by perfumes and beauty and makeup and all that. And that was just a playground. So I, you know, applied to what was then um, a local store in Portland, but it was got bought by Macy's. So just visualize Macy's at the time. And I didn't get the job in the perfume industry uh, section. I was what was called a floater because I was a teenager, but we, you could work when you were 17, 16, 17. And I was just determined to be there. So one day I just marched myself up to the human resources department And I stood there and I said to the lady, I would like to work in the cosmetics department. And she looked at me and she goes, well, it's not up to me. You're going to have to ask the manager. And she's standing right there. And she was literally like just a few feet away from me. So I got, you know, a little bit nervous, but I took a deep breath and I walked up to her and I said, "Um, I'd really like to work because I worked at the store. I said, I'd really like to work in your department. And so she talked to me for a little bit. And then she said, Now, this is where fate intervened. And I feel this thread throughout my life. She said, were you a tutor in junior high school? And I said, yes. She goes, did you tutor tutor a boy named Sam? And I said, yes. And she said, he was my brother. He is my brother. And he was much younger than her, as was I. She was in her 20s, probably, and I was in a teen. And she said, you really made a very big difference in his life. I was like a reading tutor in ninth grade. And she said, absolutely. I'd love for you to come work in the department. And I just thought like I had woken up in a dream. So the next day, and and now to just take the story forward, for the next two to three years, just high school summers and holidays, that was my job. So of course I was surrounded by scent And the perfumers whom I would later meet, literally 20 years or 15 years later, when I was at IFF. But back then, 
it was at the counter, you know, it was polo, it was bluegrass, if anybody remembers that perfume, it was all the Cliniques and the Estee Lauders and all of that. Um, but it really just got me into smelling and interacting with clients and customers and, you know, how people back then were just, they knew what they wanted and they just wanted to smell or buy the latest thing or whatever it might be. So, but that alone doesn't a fragrance industry career make. Exactly. From there, I, uh, you know, sort of woke up as a lot of kids might and think, okay, you've got to get your big kid job. And my career of choice was architecture. And that's where I applied and entered. And, you know, we don't have to go through that whole thing, but it was a five-year program at the University of Oregon School of Architecture, which I graduated from interior architecture. Um, Friends that I have to this day, and I will say it's, if anybody doesn't know what to major in in their life, major in design and architecture, and it will take you everywhere because it teaches you how to think creatively and it was the foundation for how I thought about palette naturals, to be honest with you, the building blocks of natural perfumery, the building blocks of design or anything really were from that thinking, that creative thinking. So that career choice and degree, quote unquote, took me to New York. And it was six or five and a half, six years into that where I knew that just wasn't going to be my um, future. I could see ahead. That's not where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And here fate intervened again. Um, Very dear family friend who was kind of a godmother to me was like, you know, why are you complaining? What's wrong? What do you really want to do? What do you really want to do? And I was embarrassed to say, you know, I mean, I had this degree in this path in front of me. And I said, I just really want to be in the, and I didn't know what to call it. So I said, the cosmetics industry, I didn't know the fragrance was a side or subset or part of the beauty. And she said, Oh, well then, and here's where fate intervened. You need to speak to a dear friend of mine who happens to be at a new company called Griffin development. And that, if any of the listeners remember, Griffin, G-R-Y-P-H-O-N, was created by the Limited to be the engine that created all of Bath & Body Works products. Right. No idea. I don't know them. Yeah. Yeah. So Griffin Development was created, I believe, in 90 or 91. I joined them in, let's see here, 91. And they grew from zero to $500 million in less than five years in those dollars in those days. It was an amazing yeah, feat a huge of amount growth. In those days. And they brought business executives together at the management level from what was the beauty industry at the time. Um, and Griffin created the both the beauty side of Victoria's Secret and all of Bath & Body Works products scents, formulations, packaging. It was literally an engine of design development. And me entering that world as this woman's assistant um, really was the changing point in my life. And it was from there that six months in, I was put on the path of scent development again, because I just dove so far in and I, it was a combination of, I think them seeing me doing that and also me sort of being a nudge saying, I really want to do this, that I was put in the position to be the in-house sort of junior scent person that would work with Ann Gottlieb developing all the scents because she was the scent, 
the the nose, the consultant. The, the for Bath and Bodywork for Griffin at the time. Yeah, for Griffin. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was her in-house person there, you know, coordinating coordinating with the fragrance houses, learning basically how to be the client in design development, in scent development. Mm -hmm. So briefing the houses, getting the samples, preparing them for her to evaluate. And then her really mentoring and teaching me how to smell all those samples too, because I would prepare them. But of course I was smelling them and taking notes for her, you know, to then communicate back to the team. So I was a liaison really from day one, olfactive and administrative liaison and really learning all of the fragrance houses and who they were and the players and then being trained by them because back in the nineties, they, and still, I think, but back then they offered us very deep fragrance trainings. Yeah, exactly. I got IFFs. I got Fermanishas and um, Givadons and Harmon and Reimer at the time. I mean, there's a lot of fragrance houses Mm -hmm. that aren't around anymore and Drome and, So I was learning from all of them, like I was in the center of the wheel and they were all around me. But I was this junior person just really hanging on by my fingernails, trying to keep up with the pace of the development going on around me in this company. And it was a new language for me. It was a new set of colleagues. It was all new to me because I had come from a different industry. But I was literally in my elements because it just didn't get any better because we were in the GM building, which is at the corner of um, fifth Avenue and 56, seven 56. And I think I got that right. Yeah. And I mean, it was like, I'm home or I'm in the center of the universe. Super glamorous. Uh, like everything that you thought it would be. Glamorous stress. Come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But when you're young, <laughs> you know, when you're younger and you're like, this is it, the this, this stress kind of propels right, you. Yeah. Um, so that's where I really got to see it from the outside. I mean, when I say from the outside, from the client side. Yeah. Because And that's Griffin really that's really client. important. And I know we've talked about this before, but mm. one of the major issues that I think that we talked about in our conversation the other day, um, that a lot of brand, you know, uh, brand owners or people who want to start brands, who want to then start to work on fragrance development with a fragrance house, actually don't know how to be the client because they don't really understand how to get the best out of a fragrance house, how to work with a perfumer. So actually, it's really interesting that you had that perspective from the client. You were the client essentially at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And not only did it teach me how to be the client to the fragrance houses, but what would also come to serve me later is how to interact with the subcontractors who are making the product. So, for example, just so we're all on the same page language wise, um, when a scent was created at that time in those days and still today, when a scent is created, and it goes into a series of line extensions. It's not just for cologne solution, but body lotion, shower gel, conditioner, cream, anything, you name it. A subcontractor or a contract manufacturer who's making those bases will receive that scent, put it up in the base, send it back to you, the client, so you can evaluate it. And it was then and there that I also learned how fragrances come up in bases much differently, what is the base odor of those, and even determining some 
um, um, contamination that happened and discovering what the contamination was because I could smell something in the background that wasn't supposed to be there. And sure enough, and it was a long shot for me to say it because I was young and I was not so sure, but the, all those years smelling when I was back, you know, as a teenager, there was a scent and a, perf- you know, men's scent that I smelled back then. One of, back fast forward to Bath and Body Works, I was smelling a submission that had been contaminated with a previous batch that the contractor had made and didn't wash their tanks uh, clearly enough. Yeah. And, and well enough. And so when they put that new base and scent, part of the old scent that was in that tank that hadn't been cleaned contaminated that batch. And I smelled it in the background. And so when Anne was there and I said that to her, I said, I feel like I'm smelling this scent. Is it possible? We traced it back and sure enough, it had been made there. So the lesson to trust yeah, your, trust your intuition. Nose, trust, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Or if you get that feeling, and especially in what we all do, when you've got scent and you're working with scent, you often get a visual memory because scent is so tied to memory. And I had the memory of smelling it. So I knew it was there. It wasn't just me making that up. Oh, it could be this. I viscerally felt it because I had the memory because scent and memory are so yeah. connected. So, yeah, that was, I think, a real little mini uh, confidence boosting moment. But it also taught me the realities of what can go wrong and that we all have to sort of be on our game as you're checking and developing products. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I talk about a lot to my students. And I think a lot of people don't realize So it's worth kind of like um, reiterating it. It's like if you are working on a fragrance formulation for a range of products, people think, oh, well, it's just one perfume. So we just want a fragrance and we're going to put it in all of these things. But there are so many different permutations of a cream, a lotion, a shower gel, and fragrance materials perform so differently depending on how much oil's in there, how much water's in there, whether it's uh, it's got a, a, a loads of natural, smelly um, base oils. There are so many different things that you have to keep in mind that if you're working with, and this is for those of you listening, if you are thinking of working with a perfume house and you are putting together a range, just know that you need, you really should develop, have your fragrance developed. Like once you've got your base, you know, this never happens in real life, right? So you never, the base is never ready when the, it's like developing it alongside, but just know that every tweak you make to the, your base product mm-hmm. is going to affect your fragrance as well. And it's not one perfume. You've got five products. It's five permutations. Maybe they're the same um, core fragrance, but they're always going to have to be modified for, for the different bases. And, and not to mention the price. So yeah. if the cologne solution is sort of like the mothership fragrance, then by definition, those other products are going to be sold at a less price and they are going to want to put in, or they did, you know, it depends on the, on the I brand. I think nowadays but- we've got so many high-end luxury niche fragrance brands that are selling hand soaps for like just as much as a fragrance. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, but typically they'll make what's called an LPV, a lower price version 
of that scent to put in the body lotion or the shower gel or all of the toiletries. But, you know, I was looking at a jewelry just happened onto a really, I won't mention the name, it's a, a real rock stars jewelry brand out of Los Angeles. And their fragrances that they launched for the brand are like, you know, five, $600. And the soap is just also in three figures and the candles are oh in high goodness. three figures. And it's, you know, it really is all about the branding too. Um, but usually, typically, those line extensions have the LPV in them um, for at least when we were doing that. But anyway, yeah. back to your question, because that's only like the first. That's job. the first. But I know it's it's so funny it because we foundation. have we have like a very I I feel like we have had have very similar path into the industry in the and the reason that I was laughing when you were was saying about the working on the beauty counter. It reminds me. So when I was like 16, um, I was in the sixth form at school and I got a job working on a Saturday for Boots. So Boots, the so in the UK, Boots is like, um, I don't know, like a pharmacy, I guess. I don't know what the equivalent in the US is. I guess it's like, is it like Walgreens or something or? Well, but is Boots the whole store. Yeah. Like so Walgreens, back in, so back in those days, we used to have, we had like, and we, I worked in a quite a big boots brand, a uh, boots yeah. store. And downstairs was, there was a pharmacy. They had, yes. um, you know, things like deodorants and feminine care products. And then they had makeup, they had perfume, skincare, that kind of thing. But then upstairs they had cook shop. So they had like a homewares um, section. They had a record department as well in those days, which was crazy. Oh, and wow. then they had um, it like a, what they called a cash and wrap in the middle. So anybody who was floating ended up on the till doing all of the things. And they had this department which was selling calculators. And this is how long ago it was calculators and typewriters. And I remember going for the job, the Saturday job, and I really wanted to be in the beauty department. And they were like, oh, and that was apparently that was really sought after. And it was like, no, like there's no job. There are no jobs in that area. And I ended up working on the typewriters and calculators department. <laughs> <laughs> However, years later, after I got my, I got a proper job, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether I wanted to do a degree or not. And I ended up um, working for a couple of years and did a variety of different jobs, advertising agency, photographer's assistant, etc. And I found an advert in the local in the Evening Standard, which was the London paper, and it said experienced beauty consultants wanted. And I just thought, well, now's my chance. And I thought, yeah. well, I, I don't have the experience as a beauty consultant, but you know, I've worn makeup, you know, I I know what I, you know, I know how to like scrub up you know well and also I used to work for Boots they don't need to know that it was selling typewriters right you know I say because most stores in Boots didn't have all of those departments I was like well yeah I used to work on Boots and a, you know fragrance and I actually I did do when I was about 14 I had a work experience from school where I did two weeks on a perfume and makeup counter so I thought do you know what we'll see what happens and I went to this interview and it turned out that they were like about 150 women 
all in store uniform, like Estee Lauder consultants, people who worked in Harrods, all sorts. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so out of my depth here. But I ended up getting the job and I totally was winging it. And it was for the promotion team for Shiseido Cosmetics launch in the UK. Um, and oh, so, yeah, wow. it was one of those things that it's like we both started out like working on the counter. It was like, yeah, so funny. But you know how valuable that was. And, oh, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I have a memory of, I mean, this podcast will go on forever. I have a memory of a young guy. And now, guys, I was young, too. So he was probably cute. But Here's the point. He had gotten in a horrible skiing accident and his neck was in one of those braces, but that attached to the skull. It was oh, yeah, sort yeah. of horrifying. And uh, but you could tell he was an athlete and he came because he needed to have a cologne to wear because it was really difficult for him to shower every day yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And I remember he bought polo. Oh, wow. I mean, I remember that to this day. And so it's not all about, you know, the, the woman who just wants to have the next best greatest. That was a time where scent really made a difference in someone's Absolutely. life. And I think you that's know? one of the most powerful. I think that I have a similar story in that when I was working at Shiseido, we used to have to do, you know, makeovers on people and all sorts. And I remember thinking, you know, I loved working in that. I loved the job. I loved working for the company. It was super cool. And, but at the back of my mind, it was like, you know, I can't spend my life working on a makeup counter. You know, I need to do mm -hmm. something more than that. And then I, I remember a woman, it was like an older lady came in and we, yeah, obviously we had the women who didn't, who were rich, bored, didn't know what to do with themselves. And it would spend an absolute fortune on face creams and what have you. But, you know, they all wanted someone to talk to. They were all lonely. They all wanted to have something that made them feel good. And I remember talking to this lady. She came and she was sat in the chair and I gave her a little makeover. And, uh, you know, and it turned out that she'd just had um, a cancer diagnosis. She was like feeling really, you know, awful about herself. And that moment, like just sitting and having some of that time to herself and that experience of feeling good. And a little mm -hmm. spritz of scent walking through the department, it just lifted her spirits. And, yeah, lifted and I her think spirits, people exactly. forget, actually. And I think sometimes we forget that actually the industry, as as fake as it can look from the outside, the beauty cosmetics, whatever, you know, we see the latest Kardashian doing now on on social or, or influencers on social media, ultimately you know, this whole industry, yeah, it can make women, it can make people feel insecure if they feel like they're having to live up to some um, standard, beauty standard that they can't, that's unattainable. But honestly, like, that's one of the things that freight that really got me about fragrance specifically is that it can change your mood. It can make you yeah. just feel from being like in the doldrums or feeling really terrible to just completely like switching your mood and yeah, lifting your spirits. Absolutely. And that's really when I felt like actually maybe this is something that is worthwhile after all. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I'm right there with you because 30 years later, I'm still here. Right. Exactly. And you know? God, yeah, I know I'm looking at the time thinking we can probably do full Joe Rogan three hours if we wanted to, but don't worry, I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to go on that long. But um, one of but the But I want to tell you how I got to IFS. Yeah, yeah, too. do. So because that, yeah, no, I was going to say, so 
when I, so I, for those listening, I worked at IFF as an evaluator back in, I think it was like the mid, it was mid nineties. It was like 94 to 99. And I remember sitting in the office and we worked, I worked on the unglamorous stuff like fabric conditioner and own label, you know, and all of those things. But the New York office like had like, they did the fine fragrance and people always think, oh yeah, it's Paris, it's France, but actually New York was like the hub of the fragrance, of real fine fragrance. And there was this, um, we worked a lot with Unilever and they had, and I didn't really get to touch any of those projects really. I, I kind of did occasionally, but not not so much. And it was Lynx, it was in the UK, it was Lynx at the time, but Axe, right. the Axe body spray and Impulse body spray for that was the female one. And we, you know, every now and again, their whisper would go around the office saying, and Gottlieb's coming in, like, you know, look busy, like tidy your desks. And there was this like the famous, you know, the formidable Anne Gottlieb was always like this, um, this person that we were like, oh my God, you know, we, we've got to make sure the office is all polished up. And then when I found out that you were like, you work with Anne Gottlieb, it's just like, that would, that's a really interesting, um, you know, how did you end up you know, I know. So you've said you ended up working with Anne Gottlieb at the Bath and Body at Griffin. But at then Griffin. how well, did that Griffin. all fit in with IFF? Because I never could work out whether Anne Gottlieb worked for IFF or whether she was freelance no, or like no, how no, it no, all no. worked. No, no. She is what's known as a fragrance consultant. Oh, so she was a consultant and, even in those days. Right. OK. Yes. In those days. Yeah. And she has a very interesting story to her own career trajectory. But um, that's another. Yeah. In, yeah. It's another. Yeah. We could go off on so many tangents. So she was full force in her fragrance consulting and they hired her to be the nose to be basically that guiding light for yeah. all the scent. And whether they got briefed to IFF or Fermanish or Givadon or whoever it might be, she, all those samples came into Griffin and she came and smelled all of them and gave the final yeah, approval right. for what got approved in for that collection. So I was the person inside that managed all that. So when she came, yes, she would meet with the head of the departments or the management and then come back in our little internal windowless office and sit and smell. So we developed a very nice relationship. She was a mentor, um, obviously a guide, uh, both professionally and personally through the industry, as well as sort of a career godmother, because as Griffin grew quickly, and so four years goes by fast, they reached their own goal of reaching the 500 million. It was the goal was you reach 500 million in value or five years, whichever is first, and the limited will then buy them out. So that goal was met and I'm consolidating the story a little to just move us along and said to me, and I also expressed interest, what do I do now? And she said, well, would you be interested in working at IFF? So proceeded a nine month cycle <laughs> that took several interviews and just the timing, it just took what it took. Um, and I did jump over and start working at IFF. I think it was 94 that was the same um, year that I yeah. joined. Yeah. Uh, 91, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 95. I can't remember, but I was then there for seven years, both East and West Coast. But I was in New York and so started working on, you know, 57th and 10th. So it was 10th Avenue, 57th, uh, you know, laterally across from where the GM building was. 
And that was now, now I was inside the fragrance house as you were. And so when you say, how did you get to work with Anne? Well, it was very important for her as it would be for any of us if we were you know, consultants to have teams of people that we knew we could trust and work and collaborate with. And so when I went to work in there, that was my role was to be that inside person there to work with the salespeople there. And at first, I can't remember at first, I was put in evaluation at first. So I was an evaluator, which then became known as FDM, Fragrance Development Manager, working on all of her projects. So that's where really my career, as I like to say, went to the heart of the white hot universe, working with the perfumers and the brands and you know, whether that was Donna Karen or Calvin Klein or the Unilever yeah, with Anne gosh, or I different, remember the Donna Karen all the brands. Yeah, well. all the Donna Karen work we did too while her husband was still alive at the time. So question, so, sorry to interrupt because I, I think I'll forget otherwise. I heard like there was, I, we talk about like headspace um, uh, encapsulation, you know, like the headspace where you, um, they like grow a rose under a glass bubble and they analyze the headspace. Yes. So there was a thing that I heard back in the day and I wasn't really, I never ever went to the New York office, but do you remember like Donna Karen that when he, she launched the men's fragrance, it had this like engine oil headspace note to it. Did you ever work on that? I didn't work on that one. Because so there I was this rumor, that. like I heard that they put an engine on the top of the building in New York and then they headspaced the engine for that. I mean, and who knows whether that's like a, an urban myth or whether it actually happened. Right. You know, that's very probable because I do remember when her husband, Stephen uh, Weiss, I believe his last name was, um, he was, they were into very interesting, unique scents to pull yeah. in from body, you know, little odors or yeah. in, in interesting little olfactive experiences to hide in the sense. Um, but anyway, that was, that was the era. So 95, 96, yeah. 97, 98, 99. Um, and working on, at, so getting back to where we both had similar experiences, working with Anne took me to London and also to Paris and also to Argentina because of Unilever and working yeah. on all those projects. So, there so was you likely came into the, did you see so you came into the Hammersmith office? Well, I mean, obviously we yes. didn't, yeah, so yeah, we didn't yeah. meet in those days, just for anyone listening, we didn't meet in those days, but you, we must've been in the same yes. office at the same, same time. Office, yeah. Same place at the same time yeah, and it's probably not, it's working crazy. on the same projects. Because you said you were working on Axe and Impulse. I didn't really or work on Axe and Impulse. Um, I we did I did a bit of evaluation around because we did we did a lot of you know the office we evaluated everything everybody was kind of yes. working as a, a team it was a really small sales office small. so yeah. everyone kind of pitched in if there was something really important that came up you know like evaluating the latest act submissions or whatever we would all pitch in and do that so I I didn't ever work on any of the accounts but. Yeah, I think the probably the close, you know, the most I had. Do you remember, were you um, involved when the Spice Girls did a limited edition impulse? Yes. So yes. like the funny yes. story there, like yes. Amber was one of the notes in the um, in the 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 Spice Girls impulse um, body spray thing. And somebody they were doing a photo shoot in London and. I was the person who had to go track down a lump of amber resin for the photo shoot. 
Oh, you're And kidding? I remember Catherine, yeah. like, and I don't remember all the details, but I remember in just off Oxford Street, there were, there's a little road called St. Christopher's Place, which has like a little, a few little niche boutiques in it. And in those days, there used to be a jewelry shop that was just amber, you know, like the amber fossilized yeah. bugs in resin, a jewelry yes. shop that just sold that. And I remember walking past it and there was a big piece of display amber in the window. And I remember saying, I don't know who I, thinking, oh, yeah, maybe they will like hire it out for the shoot. And I had to go in a taxi because it was worth a fortune. It was really expensive. And having to go and and procure this this piece of amber and have it safely delivered. I think Catherine came and collected it. And then, you know, it was sent back in a taxi. And yeah, that's pretty much the extent of my involvement. Yeah. No, but I mean, it just goes to show you that we had a lot of latitude and would pull out all the stops to make these huge fragrance collections and launches. Yeah, and that was just as a fragrance house. We weren't really involved in the, yeah, there was a lot that went into it in those days, really. A value added to the client from the fragrance house. Yes, a lot of creativity from the fragrance house, from the marketing team, um, the smelling of the raw materials and teaching them how to smell. So you and I were talking earlier and what we've both come to do in our own lives all these years later is really teach people how to smell. Yeah. And that was one of the jobs that I grew into. So I was in evaluation. Um, I did a little bit of marketing. I was never in the marketing department officially, but there was a moment there when the marketing director was gone and Anne said, I need you to come with me to South America and make this presentation. Literally, I thought I was jumping off a four-story building. I was so, you know, scared. It was a big deal for me at the time. But the marketing um, always is about teaching and educating and showing them the stories around how the fragrance will work. But then most importantly, and I think you did this too, is doing fragrance trainings. Yeah, and that's, I really that's how I started in, out really yes. to understand that how much I love teaching, honestly. Yes. Because we yes. used to do the same, I, you know, trainings for buyers who would come in and didn't know the first thing about how to smell, how to select a fragrance for the, the product line that they were working on. And yours was a bit different, I think, but my people were, I don't know, like supermarket buyers who'd been buying kitchen paper or toilet paper like for a year and then their their department had shifted them into laundry care and air care and they were having to work with a fragrance house on selecting a fragrance for an air freshener or a um, a, a fabric conditioner and they did not know the first thing so we it was our role really to educate them so that we weren't speaking into the void and we had a better chance at winning the um, the brief because we knew that they knew what they were smelling and, you know, it was just about helping them be a better client, really. Helping them be a more educated yeah. client. And so the people that I would teach would be the clients who were from those big brands. So the Donna Karen team yeah. or Calvin Klein team or whoever it may be that needed a fragrance training so they would know how to work with us. Yeah. So they would even know how to describe the scent they were creating. And me too, that's where I really fell in love with that aspect of it and showing them and describing and using all the language. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, this is so circuitous. We're, we're going <laughs> so, around. Yeah, so one of the things that I was going to say, actually, and like, so nowadays you do, you still do consulting and fragrance training as part of your business with Palette Naturals and... Well, so I I, listen, I went into sales while I was at IFF too. So I really wanted to me, I thought I have to get into sales so I could really get in front of clients. 
And so from IFF, you know, I have to intertwine a little bit of real life here too. Um, my life brought me back to the West Coast where I still worked with IFF on, in the California office, which is no longer there. Um, or at least it wasn't last I checked. I don't know right now. I don't know. But we were calling on clients there. So my own personal life was now in California, but still working with the East Coast. So now it really became consultative sales. I mean, it always was, but in our world, in sales, it's in scent. It's always educating, smelling, experiential, and sales all at the same Absolutely, time. Absolutely, yeah. And and really, it's called consultative sales. That's somebody taught me that phrase. I didn't make that up. And that really was the foundation from that point forward as to how I always did my job because I then worked for two more fragrance houses before I even launched my own company. So it's always been this intertwining of, yes, representing your brand or your job or whatever you're doing, educating the people you're meeting with. And in our case, in our world, really getting intimate with the materials because those people are going to tell a story with those materials. So they have to know how to tell that story and you have to guide them to have it be in alignment with what they want to claim, what they want to achieve, how do they want it to not only smell, but how to make you feel in the case of a lot of naturals, which is where my career took me as well. So it all sort of laid the foundation, you know, each layer kind of built on the next. So coming out back, and I say back to the West Coast, because that's where I was born, as you know, from the West Coast, um, that and it, I will say this. Now, I I don't know if this is true, because our industry is more transparent. But when I returned to the West Coast in 98, 99, 98, 2000, I don't think I could have done my job had I not been in the industry in New York, because the industry is so closed and secretive and opaque that my working knowledge of it and my understanding, I could visually see how everything worked. I was just sort of being remote um, ahead of ahead of time. Yeah, right. But yeah. if you just woke up one day in, 90, in 1999 or 2000 and said, I want to be in the fragrance industry, and you were from the West Coast, it may have been a much harder ask because you might not understand all of the connections of how this scent will work its way through the system before it's finished. And I think Does it's one sense? of the, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things also um, that we possibly, I mean, sometimes I forget that I fell into the fragrance industry by accident, uh, you know, getting the work placement at IFF back in the day and, you know, move. And actually 99 is when I left and went to work for Neil's Yard, which for those of you who don't know, is like a, an, a UK based um, naturals, organic essential oils, you know, brand. But people now, I mean, I think it's a lot more transparent now. I'm yeah, thinking yes. when I first started teaching perfumer, perfumery again, like after my kind of hiatus, I suppose, from the industry, that was back in 2010, 2011. Even then, it was still quite closed. There wasn't really this sort of open, educational, you couldn't buy small amounts of materials to play around with at home. Mm -hmm. The industry was still very, very secretive. And I do think actually that 
I suppose it's people like us who have stepped, who've been in the industry and stepped out, who have this passion for education. We've kind of like forced it to trickle out a little bit. And of course, there have been perfumers who have left the industry, who now are very um, open with what they've learned and they want to share as well. But I think the fragrance industry as it stands and, and actually as it stood back in the day was very, very, um, it, it was a very closed door place, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, by design. Yeah. And even to the point, I remember when we were in the New York office that once a fragrance was created and launched, it wasn't about us. It it really wasn't about us even getting in print. That no, that nobody knew who that. was the no, perfumer of knew. any. And no, right. like now it's like, you know, the perfumers are, are almost like rock star perfumers now. But back in the like nobody even I suppose we didn't even think or question like who was the perfumer for CK1 or, or like a, a, the latest Estee Lauder fragrance or the latest launch. Nobody even inquired as to who that person was. It was mm -hmm. just the brand was. But now everybody wants to know the nose well, behind it. And that and that transparency, I think, has happened also in large part due to the phenomenon of the indie industry that yeah. came up on the West Coast. We can talk about that's a whole mm. other thing because I had been back on the we West probably Coast. Need, and, I reckon we need a part yeah, two and a part to, three. <laughs> we do. If anyone but, listening wants a part yeah, two, just let me know. Let us know. But um, I mean, it's an interesting because we've been doing this for so long. It's just we've seen the historical ins and outs and it's like a labyrinth. You know, it's yeah. not a straight line. There's a lot that goes back and forth. But, um, you know, I did work for Agilex for a little while in 2006, 7, 8, right? Those years right before the economy crashed. And it was not bought by Furminish back then. I was on the West Coast. I had moved back up to Portland and... I worked with them uh, on the western side of the U.S., but again, they were based in New Jersey. So lots of travel. Things took me and back. And for people who don't know, like in back in the day, there were quite a lot of small fragrance houses that were reasonably independent. But a bit like how the indie brands now end up getting bought out by L'Oreal and and Estee Lauder, like fragrance brands, cosmetic brands get kind of like bought out by these big companies, the same thing kind of happened with the fragrance industry, right? So you've got like the big companies like IFF, Fermini, Shiverdan, Tagasako, Simrise, I Simrise, think were the main right. ones. The top. The top. And then they kind of like started to buy up all of the smaller houses and yeah. Right. And in the case of Agilex, even back then they went through their own rebranding because as a mid-sized company, they bought a bunch of smaller companies, became a relatively healthy, strong size, mid-sized company and, and really focused on all home, excuse me, home care, candles, rediffusers. They held some patents and rediffusers. So then Fermanish looked at this segment of business that they had developed. And this was after I was gone. And I, I believe that Agilex still keeps its own name, but it has the ownership of Fermanish. But it was after that, that remember in 08, and I don't know, this is a whole other thing you can, ex we can talk about or not, but when the economy crashed in the US anyway, it was a, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. I was already out of the everything. industry by then. So <clears throat> I left, so I was, a. Um, so I, I left IFF in 99. I went to Neil's yard. I worked in product development, 
for Neil's Yard and then I became their company like retail trainer and they relocated, they shut down the London office in 2004 and relocated to Dorset and I didn't want to go, I didn't want to leave London at the time and so 2004 and I'd already started a retail business with my then partner. So between 2004, yeah, so 2008, I was like four years into a retail business, not in the fragrance industry, completely different industry. And that was a really hard time. That was like, mm-hmm. that was tough because we, re- I almost went bankrupt in 2008 because mm-hmm. I'd, yeah. yeah, I was self-employed four years by then. And yeah. And it so wouldn't you were have, used to that. Yeah, so it was tricky, yeah. We all got systematically laid off in a matter of weeks starting in 09. So by March, we were all laid off. And I mean, that was just happening across the country. Yeah. So um, I t- decided to use that time to create and launch 40 Notes. Which so was I remember, for, yeah, so I when I started teaching back in, well, I I kind of decided back in 2010 that I was really like sick to the back teeth of my retail business. The recession was like, it wasn't really going anywhere. We had to diversify a bit, but I needed something to just take my mind off the stress. Mm -hmm. And that led me back to tinkering around with fragrance again and teaching some classes just for fun. And I'd started to do a lot of research into indie fragrance brands, natural perfume brands, all sorts of things. And I remember seeing a few. There was um, oh, Illuminated Perfume, Roxana Villa. There was obviously Mandy oh, right. Aftor. And I'm sure like 40 Notes was what it popped up as well. Because there was yeah, a I mean, lot going on um, in the States, 09, but not 10. so much going on in the UK. Yes, it was in 2010 is when I launched that. So between 08, well, 09, really, because I got let go in 09. And launching in 010, um, that was the beginning of my real, first of all, I wanted a creative project and I, I almost felt coming out of the industry, like, oh my God, I can't do perfumery. You know, there was that brainwash. Yeah. And that's something that's that people a- don't realize. And, and I'm so, I'm glad they don't realize it because the ones that have been in the industry that have come out, that people don't realize how brainwashed we are in the industry, right? So we are as, oh, you're an evaluator, you're a product developer, you cannot possibly be a perfumer. You know, you can't create your own thing because there's a very, very specific career trajectory that takes you through that path. And if you're, if you've never been in that industry, it's almost a blessing because you don't know what you don't know and you can happily dabble and launch your own thing. And you don't have any of these kind of like, I don't even know what you would call them. These constraints where you think, Oh my God, I can't do that. What will people, what will my old colleagues think? What will people in the industry think? Right. Right. And to the extent that I, I mean, I was just dying to create my own perfumery, which I did. I bought raw materials as best I could. And I created, you know, I lined them all up from top note to base note because that's just how my brain was working. So I did. I got as best I could in 2010. Um, But I will say, uh, I'll admit this freely because I needed this confidence boost. I called an old perfumer friend and I said to him, would you mind teaching me because I want to do this and I want to learn from somebody properly. And you know what he said? 
I'm not going to say his name because I want to keep his, he said to me, you don't need my permission to develop and blend. He goes, you wouldn't need permission to play the piano. Right. And I don't know that that was sort of a synchronistic thing for him to say, because I took piano for many years when I was younger. He said, you don't need my permission to play the piano. You don't need my permission to be, to do perfumery. Just do it. Just do it. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, but I really wanted to learn. But the point was, is just start. And obviously, and what was he going to do? Teach me in just a matter of months, what, you know, he had taken 30 years to learn. So his advice was really sage. It's like what we say in yoga, which I know we have that in common. I have been doing yoga for 30 years. I know you have as well that just meet yourself where you are Yeah, on your mat, just be where you are. So at that time in 2010, I just met myself where I was. I certainly knew how to smell, but I didn't know so much how to blend. And boy, did I create some whoppers that were, uh, you know, but you just have we to... all do. Everybody does. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. it doesn't matter like how many years of experience or even decades of experience. Like if you are blending material or you're working with materials that you've never worked with before. And I'm sure there are many perfumers out there who have been used to working with a restrictive palette and then they get some whole new you know, new things in there, they're almost having to go back to a bit of a beginner's mind with those materials as well. So, yeah. we're, you know, we're all, yeah. every, we're all learning as we go to a certain degree as well. You know, it was interesting back in 2002, I remember this to the day because that's when I created 40 Notes LLC. Um, it was, Givadon had a program where, and by, by program, I mean, it was a little business unit where they had accords. They weren't naturals. They were just accords. And I remember that's when I first set up my perfumery. So I'd left New York, come to California and Santa Barbara. And I created a perfumery based on what I could gather. And I remembered that little offering they had. So I signed up for it and I got many of those. And those started helping me, training me, playing with those before I got a bunch of single notes that I could get Mm. my hands on in terms of essential oils. But at that time, the perfumer's apprentice wasn't a thing yet. She wasn't quite up and running yet. So, you know, that didn't, wouldn't happen for several years later. So we all just gather what, what we can while we can in whatever phase we're in. And right now it just so happens that it's profoundly transparent and available for people and if they want to so, jump there's in. There's so many Plus, opportunities now that right. like we so didn't have. And I remember mm-hmm. doing when I was at IFF, um, they paid for me to do the ICATS course, the like the correspondence course, fragrance training that came with the oh the textbook was the um Williams and Curtis um textbook. And that was literally the only thing that I had access to apart from the in-house training, because in those days, unless you spoke fluent French, you couldn't go to a perfume school to get any of the other, you know, I, any training. And I couldn't, right. I couldn't afford, because I was working, obviously working full time. I couldn't afford to take two years out and go to perfume school. Yeah. It just wasn't. But now there's so many opportunities for people. There's a lot more opportunities. So I think the only missing link um, piece right now is just 
what the opportunity at Robertay offered me was really to just dive in and really understand naturals. And so, so at Robertay, what were you? So you ended up what you were working in sales, were you for Robertay or? Yes, I was working yeah. in sales. So started in 2012 and went to 2016. I was on the West Coast. Again, they're based in New Jersey, so yeah. lots of travel. So I was dealing with um, mostly West Coast clients and a little bit farther in. Um, natural raw materials, raw ingredients, both flavors and fragrance. Now, flavor is not my area at all. So that was a real um, weak point for me because I wasn't used to working with flavor chemists, but I showed them some raw materials as well. But as well as Roberté is also like a fragrance house, mm-hmm. so they would do fragrance development. So I did both of those tracks, fragrance and development. And I think a lot of materials. a lot of people don't realize that you know we yes. say you know the the big companies like Roberté is you know it's quite a, a big one of the big fragrance houses. But on it's what for those listening who who aren't familiar, like Roberté has got this huge reputation for naturals, even though they're a fragrance house and they develop fine fragrances with with naturals and aroma chemicals, their kind of real speciality is high quality naturals, right? Well, they're considered a natural raw material supplier. Right. So they're a five gen- fifth generation family owned French company that's both a supplier to the industry, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And that's what naturals. people don't realize that everybody supplies yes. everybody else. They do, as well as being a fragrance house where they compete and create projects just like the other fragrance houses. They do both. So it was there that my own missing link, that's where I learned about naturals and pr- the processing and you know how those materials are uh, those oils are garnered from the rock, from the natural biomass, if you mm-hmm. want to use that word. Um, so that piece really opened my eyes and it's what inspired the creation of Palette Naturals. Literally, and so that's one of, it. and so, you know, that's one of the things that I was really interested in uh, talking to you because you, you know, we've had very similar um, backgrounds in working in essentially what is a chemical company right so aroma chemicals like the real what what people on the outside would say synthetic perfumes um industry but actually we both have this like passion for naturals and it's i I think it's quite unusual for someone to come out of the fragrance industry and then really focus on a naturals brand it tended not to be something and i think it's different now because i think a lot of that for consumers are pushing for we want they want more naturals the demand has made the fragrance industry really kind of like think about that and and we see a lot more na- mainstream i say commercial fragrance brands saying oh we're all natural even 5 years ago you didn't really see um, commercial fragrance brands that were were purporting to be all natural it was really just the indies it was like small niche kind of independence mainly in the states because of like the the compliance in the eu and and what have you was a little bit more tricky um but now we're you know we are we're, we're seeing those brands really putting a lot of investment into naturals which yeah i remember a perfumer who i'm not i won't name either um sitting next to me at some something and talking about naturals and uh and this perfumer said, "Oh, you can't make a, a perfume with 100% naturals. It would it would smell disgusting." Mm. 
And And here we are, right? And here we are. Well, what I was seeing, which inspired this whole venture, you know, crazy as it might be, is that clients were asking me. So when I was working in that position for a natural project, so their their specifications were we want 100% natural scent. We want a transparent ingredient list because we need to be able to show that. And we want you to reveal all that to us. And then when push came to shove, they could not afford the minimums. Yeah. Over and over and over, I would submit a project only to have it be rejected by management because the client's potential just wasn't there. And that that is a you know, a virtue of an entrepreneurial company on the entrepreneurial side of the United States with the creativity going on, but they were small. Yeah. This wasn't a L'Oreal subsidiary. And that's something natural. that is worth kind of like pointing out for people who don't know. If you are a brand and you are a small independent and you think, mm-hmm. okay, I, I don't want to learn how to make the fragrance myself. I want to hire a perfumer to make this fragrance for me what do I do? And it's still quite, it's a, it's a tricky place because, you know, what, what would mm-hmm. you say? I mean, I'm not really in touch with the bigger companies nowadays, what their MOQs are. I know like IFF are oh, just like ridiculous, been, but, yes, and Robertay I think is a lot smaller. So Robertay well, so is Robert probably. Tay, you have to ask yourself, are you asking about the MOQ for the raw material or are you well, about the right. So both actually. So there, so there is like, you know, if you want to go and outsource your fragrance formulation to someone like, you know, Robert, get a perfumer to make it for you. That's one thing. Yes, and then those, if you want to buy direct, minimums, that's, yeah, those minimums are, gosh, I think they've gotten as high as if they're either going to be dollars or they're going to be kilos yeah. and they've gotten as high as 50 kilos for one cent, one yeah. skew. So that's way too much oil for an indie startup yeah. brand to use. So just to backtrack, seeing this over and over again in my own real life, you know, sometimes we have these uh, these bolts of lightning that are ideas and then we write them down, but then it's like, do we, is that really a thing? Can we really do that? But the create the idea came because I'm a kit girl at heart. I love kits. I just <laughs> love kits. So I always thought, let's just, what if we created a collection? And that was really the inspiration. Palette Naturals are the answer to those clients, if I had to draw a line, mm-hmm. who said, we, we want a natural blend. That's what these are. We want a transparent ingredient list, which is what I do. Every ingredient list for these accords is transparent on the fra- on the website in alphabetical order. So the formula is not there, but the ingredient list with CAS number. And then their third thing is we can't afford minimums and we have a basically no minimum. In production, it's like one kilo. So that those were my pillars. And I started with 14 accords developing them around the wheel. So everybody knows the fragrance wheel is. So we started with 14 and now we've got 20 and it's just their palette. So really aimed at formulators, specifically skincare formulators and people who are in labs who don't have the bandwidth to become a perfumer. That's also a fact. So that's something that I really want to emphasize because I get so many people like that in my world. So 
in, you know, I obviously I sell courses and programs teaching people how to create fragrances. A lot of them want to create fragrances for their own brand. And then I get two types of people. I get the people who really want to be a perfumer. They really want to do that creative process. And then I get people who are like, well, I have a skincare brand. And I I do, I sort of partner with, um, there's a company that has a very similar client base to mine, uh, but they are a big school that's, that create, they, they teach people how to create organic skincare brands. And Mm -hmm. so I get a lot of people from, from that school come to me and say, well, I don't have the bandwidth to learn how to be a perfumer. I don't, you know, I just want to create a nice scent, a natural scent for my face cream, my shower, you know, like my body product, my skincare line. And so that is why I'm really excited about Palette Naturals. And because I think that that is going to really help those people who just don't have the the bandwidth that, you know, they've got enough on their plate creating their product line rather than learning a whole other skill set of becoming a perfumer. Right. And also. Right. The struggle with create, and and this is something that came up for me with one of my students, actually, um, that somebody came to a class, she's like developing a skincare product line. And she's like, you know what, I don't have the bandwidth. I want to outsource the perfumery part for this skincare line to a fragrance house, it's naturals, et cetera, et cetera. And she got, it just so happened that she got a lot of submissions back as she came to an in-person one day class with me. And you know, we spent some time smelling through them. And, and honestly, and you know this, that like, if you are a small company, you go to a, a, even a reasonable size house with no, you know, minima, like with a, with a very small minimum, they are not going to have a perfumer working specifically bespoke on your product. And I yeah. smelt them and they, you know, their shelf, their shelf, pro, what we would call a shelf fragrance, which is right. from the I fragrance people, library. The um, library, people need to know that they yeah. don't do custom perfumery whenever you submit a brief. They will go to the evaluation team who will look in what's called the library. It's not a bad thing. These are formulas that have been developed by all the same perfumers, but they fit the profile that you've just submitted. We pull those code numbers. We put those oils up in the base and submit those. And that was what so, my job was for five years. Uh, you know, yeah. that was, I ran the fragrance yeah. library in the UK and people don't know that. And they think they're getting a perfumer work on their 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 fragrance for their brand and and we smelled through them and it was just like honestly like there is nothing here that you could not do yourself yourself with a bit of training and actually I think having pre-blended natural accords like you know you I I think that's going to shortcut that massively well and also look at it's and the thing is, is it is a shortcut for especially for formulators, because when you get down into the resins, the ambers, some of the materials with a high viscosity, they're very thick or they're solid. Now you've got somebody with X amount of time to develop a line who's then got to heat up a raw material, liquefy it. And I just listened to your podcast last night too, your new one. So you've got to dilute it. You've got to work with that. That is the part of perfumery that they are just not, it's, there's no time in their job for that. If you're a cosmetic chemist, a skincare formulator, an entrepreneur who's launching their own, you're a maker entrepreneur, let's say. Yeah. 
Um, and even let's say you're a perfumer, you've got 500 or a thousand materials on your organ, on your desk. You might still just really fall in love with an accord. It doesn't mean you can't use all your other materials. Right. Or and that was convert- what I was going to ask you. So, you know, right. you, you've, your accords are created to work with each other. Because I do actually, Absolutely. I get a lot of people asking me about fragrance oils as well. And I never, ever recommend anyone uses fragrance oils in their product lines because what what we find is people buy fragrance oils and they mix them together and they are not supposed to be mixed together if you are crea- if you are buying something like the accords from palette naturals they are designed to be blended together and yes because you can use them with other materials so if you say you've got some of your favorite sandalwood you, there's no reason right why you couldn't use that with no. your no because the accords. the accords are um blended they're blended materials together by olfactive family so first of all that's important so each accord is within that olfactive family so for example green a is going to smell profoundly of cut grass but it's not just cis 3 hexanol yeah it's got cis 3 hexanol natural plus some other materials in there that sort of round that out but it's green and it's not a green floral, woody bouquet with citrus, it's green. So each of the accords has a name, which is very, it's not romantic and it's not marketing. It is what it is because I'm considering these raw materials on your desk. Now you do it with them, whatever you want. So they're tools for you. So for example, let's say you picked up the soft floral. And that one is a rose blend, a dewy, light green rose blends formulated for skincare. But let's say your client had the budget and wanted some rose absolute. So fine, you put your rose absolute to the amount of money that you can afford for your client. Or to the maximum of IFRA or... Or or to the maximum, right, the regulatory allows. And then you can add or supplement with the Rose Accord, which is called Soft Floral. So it's a much dewier, and it's actually more, in my opinion anyway, a little more friendly on a skincare product because it's got the dewier mm-hmm. facets. It's not so jammy and yeah. rich and heavy. But let's just say you loved it, but it was too light and dewy and you wanted to punch it up, then put some Rose Absolute in there, your formulation and and then fill out with whatever you wanted. If you were creating a huge fine fragrance, you could add some sandalwood or some vetiver or whatever, or you could be mixed media and you'll add some fantastic ambretolite or musk. Or yeah, right. And want. so there's yeah, no reason absolutely. why you can't use these to add no. in to uh, a mixed media with, with some aroma chemicals if you wanted to, you know, use your like a nice absolutely. linear base that's that's some isoe super and some hedione and some synthetic masks exactly. and yeah, and, exactly. and do that mixed media fragrance. Exactly. And you just view these as neat materials. They are, when you look at the ingredient list, you'll see they're blended with natural TEC because some of them need that diluent in order to have the lower viscosity. So TEC natural is the carrier for the accords, but it's not, um, they're not diluted at just 10%. They're the maximum they yeah. can be in order to create that viscosity that you can then use. And that's something, so yeah. So that's something that we mentioned in, I think it was, was it this week's podcast? The, the one that just came out, um, 
I want to say it's episode, yeah, I've got my my chart over to the left. Yeah, episode 10. So if you want to understand a little bit more um, about d- diluents and I talk about TEC, if you have a listen to episode 10 of the podcast, we talk about that. But yeah, TEC is a really nice... Um, yeah, it's a. It's really you're using it as a mobilizer for yes. sticky. Yes, mobilizer is a good word. Yeah, yeah. So it's not. Yeah, you're not diluting things down to ten, but they're still neat oils. Your the the palette natural cords are still what would we would call neat oils, but they do have some TEC as a mobilizer. Yes. So that I mean. In a nutshell. Wow. So we (laughs) have gone for like, I don't know how how we're going to end up in the editing, but we have gone for, this is, oh my God, just then, I know you're going to appreciate this and this is going to sound a bit woo for some people, but when I just looked at my little recorder here, it was one hour, 11 minutes and 11 seconds. (gasps) Are you serious? So we have to end on the woo note then. We do. And we have to end on that woo note because it was like all of those ones in a line. Oh, no. (laughs) And what what we will have to do is maybe we'll do another conversation because I love these conversations about maybe we should do like a woo episode. Shall we do a woo episode for the future? Well, we we must because it'll take you right into what I'm doing Doing next. Dot, 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 dot. watch this space so just to leave a cliffhanger so finally um I was going to say any tips for people listening getting started but I think we've you've covered so much of that and I will put the links to palette naturals and all of your accords in the show notes so people can get their hands on those if they want to have a play but just as a little cliffhanger so you are do you want to share a little bit about what you're working on at the moment as a teaser I would love to go for it. I will. Okay. Well, for the past year, I've been studying tarot, the tarot. And if anybody, I'm sure everybody knows what the tarot is, the divination cards, tarot cards or yeah. Oracle. Mm-hmm. And I've been, uh, you know, I've been a pra- not a practitioner, a recipient of astrology since my early twenties. I'm not an astrologer, but the archetypes of astrology have always spoken to me. And I've always had like this, you know, I've done my yoga practice for 30 years. So that side of my life has always been there. But there's been an intuitive side, and we can talk about this in part two. Um, you know, and my family can sort of corroborate some things that have happened here and there, but that intuition has always been there. So this last year, formally studying the tarot, um, I came upon this real you know, desire to combine the perfumery and the tarot together. Which is very interesting because the major arcana in the tarot are 22, and I've got 22 of the accords, which do resonate each at, you know, a level because they're all olfactively their own. So what I've started to create, and I'm working on the website right now, but I'm doing the sessions here in Tucson as kind of really refining it and honing it is combining a tarot reading with some work with crystals just to kind of attune to color because color is also a vibration and then developing a scent for that person that supports the reading. So whatever the energy of that reading is, we typically do a three card reading because there's time involved there. And then we use the energy of where they need support, what they're missing, what they'd like to rebalance. You know, it's all about energy really at the end of the day. 
and bringing them into alignment of what they could be maybe embodying for the next week to month. And that scent supports that. So that's where I am right now. That's so exciting. I love that. And so people who have been with me for a while, I mean, I know there are going to be people listening to the podcast who don't really know that side of me, but I know there are going to be my hardcore crew of students and email subscribers. And, you know, they know that I'm, you know, I, I do a, you know meditation. I've got a program called the Scent Shift that is all about using scent as a tool for well-being. And I'm going to do a podcast episode on that as well. And sound frequencies and, you know, all of that woo stuff. So um, they will know that I will love that. And I will got, yes. I had to come to Tucson and have, and, a, have a reading. Well, and so that's the thing is that the first thing people are going to say is, oh, can you do it virtually? So, you know, the full-on soul essence session, that's what they're called, soul essence sessions, of course, needs to be in person. But what I'm creating is by using the chords, which are already created and sort of have an attunement to them, is we can do the reading virtually, because I have done that, I can do the readings virtually. And then talking with the person and really t- tuning into the energy that they need from that reading is assign the accord that works with that. So it's not about this becoming their next next signature scent. It's about them using it as an anointing or as a meditation or putting in the hands, I'm rubbing my hands together, and then inhaling to kind of just embody that vibration or that energy to take them through the next few weeks as they're manifesting whatever they're they're choosing or hoping. It's so funny, like listening to you speak about this. This is, I've talked to my people about my little side project, my fragrant alchemy thing. And, you know, I would call that like a scent anchor. So it's like their little scent anchor that they can take with them for, you know, that period of of time. And then, you know, maybe it will be something different in a few months time. And Exactly. And it will evolve as they evolve. And of course, me loving jewelry, they're going to get it in a little sway bag, and it'll be in a rollerball. And so I want it to feel like it can accompany them. And I want it to be pretty or beautiful. So... That's, exciting that's that's thank you thing. so much yeah. it's been so lovely Thanks. talking to you Miriam and I'm sure uh, everybody has loved listening to your journey and what you're doing now and um, yeah so thank you for listening folks um, we're going to mm-hmm. round it off now I will put all of the details in the show notes as I said before and maybe we will get together for a part two Karen, it would be my pleasure. I just loved it. I had so much fun. I wish I could jump through the screen and have tea with you this afternoon. <laughs> I know we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to do a uh, yeah. If you're ever in the New Forest, or if I'm ever in um, in the US ever again, if I get to travel there, but. Um, yeah, I've never been to Arizona, so maybe that's that's something that should be on my travel list. But let's round up and thank you so much again. And thanks, folks, for listening. And I will see you all next time on the Perfume Making Podcast. Mm-hmm.